to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Uh, good evening and welcome. Uh, I am your host, Tim Fredericks, along with my co-host, Fran Gavin. And we're here tonight with another show that has been curated by uh, our doctoral students here at Centenary University. This evening, it is uh, Chris Ireland and Ken Russo, doctoral students in cohort number 14, I uh, have a very special guest and uh, uh, a very interesting topic regarding some things that are very pertinent uh, to education today. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Chris and, and Ken and uh, uh, to welcome our guest. Hey, Chris and Sean, how are we doing, guys? Hey, Ken, how are you? I'm doing all right. Excited to have you on the show. Um, I'm here with Chris. He's Chris Ireland. He's my uh, my fellow doctoral student, and we are excited to have you here. We wanted to interview, uh, you know, an interesting guest, and you being an old friend of mine, the first the first person I thought of for, for an interesting educational guest, I thought of you, so we're happy to have you. Well, I, I'm humbled to be here, and yes, old friends, long long absent, soon to be reunited, I hope. So, uh, you know, we, we, we're glad you're here. We're, we thank you for coming on. Um, this is a, this is a, you know, a leadership uh program I'm in for, for you know, Chris and I are in for our doctoral uh, and you're, you're quite famous for being a part of writing um, or writing memoirs with high school students during the COVID pandemic and turning them into a, a book and um, some people might think that that doesn't relate to leadership but but I do think it does and I think we'll, we'll get there throughout this discussion um, so you know for me there's definitely a lot of things I think we could take away from you in terms of your experience writing that. Yeah, I, I, thank you very much. I don't know so much about uh, famous, uh, maybe I guess locally known, maybe internationally respected, but uh, but fame eludes me still. Yeah, not for long though. Uh, you have a couple, you have, <laughs> now you have three out, right? Three, three COVID books? So we have, uh, in the moment, we have, depending on how you uh, quantify an omnibus edition, we either have three or four volumes out. We have um, the first edition, which was written in early 2020, which was called The Class of COVID-19, Insights from the Inside. And that one had 49 student uh, memoirs, stories in it. Then the second edition, which came out about eight months later, uh, in January of 2021, the end of 2020, that was called the class of COVID-19 second wave. And that one uh, included 24 student uh, memoirs and then also a 25th from uh, a coworker of both of ours who had passed away, Ben Luterer. Uh, and then we had put those two together and we had combined them into a deluxe edition. So uh, we had the first volume, the second volume, and then I guess, um, you know, depending on how you quantify it, the third volume, which was the combination of the two. Subsequent to that, about a year later, I worked with Ramapo College uh, of New Jersey with doing a fourth volume called The Class of COVID-19 Unmasked. And the difference there was instead of just working with Cliffside Park, where we had done volume one and volume two, we worked with uh, or we sent invitations out to every, every district in the state. So if you are a high school principal, if you are a high school supervisor of English, uh, you got an email from me, whether or not one of your teachers or one of your students wound up uh, in the book, we reached out and invited people to to share their stories. So I say four volumes, other people might say three, but, uh, but I, you know, three or four volumes of the COVID stories now. 
And Chris, feel free to jump in anytime. Uh, I know Sean a little bit already, so I'm going to kind of kick things off a bit here. Um, we have a, we have a, you know questions for you that we we've planned ahead of time, but I, I kind of just want to know, you know, we we were all going through this crazy time with with and you and I were teaching together. I don't know if the audience doesn't know this. We were teaching together at Cliffside Park when you embarked on this uh, this project. So, talk to us a little bit about you know first of all. It was, it was, we were all trying to figure out, you know, how to handle teaching and, uh, you know, being locked down and everything that went along with it. So how did the idea originate? How did it kick off? What, what, what made it get going? Give us a little bit of background on that. Well, at the time, uh, Ken, I was working at Cliffside Park with seniors. I was doing, uh, teaching a dual enrollment class. Uh, called Composition One. Dual enrollment at Cliffside Park, as I'm sure many other districts as well, gives kids an opportunity to earn uh, community college credit. So this particular program was worth Bergen uh, Community College. And Bergen was very insistent on having what they called the five major types of academic writing uh, accounted for. So they were cause and effect writing, compare and contrast writing, argument writing, expository writing, and then finally narrative. So it's just turned out when we were uh, when we were when we were leaving school, that uh, I guess middle of the March, March thirteenth, March fourteenth, uh, we were just transitioning to narrative. We were just transitioning to memoir, and so we were talking about uh, memoir. We were talking about stories with the kids, and as the weeks went on, and we were sharing our stories out loud. Uh, I think really the genesis of the project came from that, and I challenged the kids to write a second memoir. I said, for those of you who are interested, maybe we can take these experiences of the last few weeks, uh, take the experiences of, of the isolation, of the solitude, and, and put them into to writing so that we can use the skills that we've developed with the memoirs and the narratives and sort of tell a second story. When those stories started coming in and I saw how eager the students were to share. Um, you know, I've heard many stories from teachers and, and I certainly sympathize, you know, given the circumstances where they said it was very hard to motivate kids, it was very hard to get kids excited for virtual learning. Uh, I was very fortunate. I had, no, I had none of that because we, we were talking about ourselves, we were sharing stories, and the kids were um, so excited they started coming into extra extra time, extra office hours. We would do one-on-one -on -one conferences. And so it sort of developed very organically from that. And I'm not even quite sure who the first one was that said, maybe we should put it together, maybe we should make a literary magazine. Uh, but it, it snowballed. And w when the kids found out that maybe, you know, we were going to put it together into a, into a book, they sort of challenged me to see if we could get it published. And, and that's where that whole idea came from. So uh, it happened quickly. It happened organically, and it was, you know, soup to nuts, I think, about six weeks from the time we started uh, the project in its very infancy to the time we were on Amazon and in People magazine. So if you can imagine doing a whole project in six weeks, I think, uh, you know, that was part of the excitement and the thrill that we were learning as we were going. So, uh, you know, I think, I think that fulfilled the requirements of <laughs> Bergen Community College. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was me that that suggested it, right? I said, "Hey, why don't you go write this book from the classroom down the hallway?" No. Ken, if you want to take if you want to take credit, my friend, I'm happy to give it to you. Ken is in the book. <laughs> Ken, Ken's name is in the book in the in the in the acknowledgments and the thanks, of course. So you know, I always look to my betters for 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 answers. Absolutely. 
So now this this picked up steam uh, fast, I would say. I remember you uh, getting you know requests for interviews from from you know national media. Um, what do you think? So so what was it that like? So you said it was spurred on naturally by a memoir unit, and it just kind of came together as a an idea. Um, what do you think people? Why do you think they, they connected to it in terms of, you know, I'm thinking of ter in terms of leading during like, you know, a situation like this, a pandemic, um, what was it that got through to people? What was it that, that made it catch on so quick? Well, you know, I think people were scared. Uh, I really think, uh, you know, looking around the country at that time and, and certainly remembering how I felt, and I can't speak for any other adult, I can't speak for, you know, anyone on this call, but certainly I was, I, I was very scared. I, I live alone. Uh, you know, at the time, there was a lot we didn't know about COVID. And people were dying. People were dying quickly. I live very close to an old folks home, and I've shared this story before. In fact, it, it, I think it's in the introduction of one of the volumes. You know, the day that we started writing our stories, I went outside, and they had had so many uh, people die so quickly that they had uh, actually had to rent a, a mobile refrigeration unit. In other words, they were they were throwing bodies into like a sort of makeshift morgue. And I don't think that that is, uh, you know, atypical. I think a lot of people have stories like that, whether they acknowledge it or not. And I think for many, this was a sort of beacon of hope. Uh, you know, the, the kids were afraid, obviously the kids were scared, but there were also stories of joy, of stolen moments, of sneaking out to see your girlfriend or having a party in a parking lot of, you know, visiting your grandma and grandpa. So I think that there were these triumphant moments as well. And I think for uh, for many of the people who read the book, it wasn't just uh, an exercise in sort of misery, but it was an exercise in resilience. And, you know, I know, for instance, uh, Ken, you know, that was how our principal always saw it. Uh, I know talking to our principal, Mr. Pinto, Lawrence Pinto, when he would ask, uh, about it, he would always point that out. He would always really celebrate that resilient aspect of it. So I think a lot of people are looking for hope, and I think that this book, in some small way, gave that to him. Um, Chris, do you want to add anything to this line of questioning? No, oh, Ken, it's just me and you. Dead air is never good. Did you get me now? now? Yeah, we got you yeah. now, Chris. Um, yeah, I mean, this, I really enjoyed how the students were really deeply reflective on their personal growth um, throughout. A lot of the stories were pretty uplifting and unique. There was the other side of that, though, where some students, I was surprised at how much they did want to share some of the tragedy that happened uh, throughout. Um, you know, do you have to follow up much with them? I mean, how did you do? There were some really strong emotions that I think came out through some of those stories. I mean, what was that like for those students as, as you interacted with them? Yeah, no, I do follow up with many of the students. Um, you know, as teachers, I think that you, you form bonds with kids and you know, they'll email and, and write to you, and I, I always appreciate that. Um, yeah, there were a lot of kids who were, uh, you know, facing really serious mental health crises. Um, I think all the time about uh, one of the students, and, and I won't share names here, although the names are public, their names are in the book, but uh, one of the students said to me, you know, Mr. Adler, I think I killed my teacher. Like, I think I gave my teacher COVID, and I think that's why he died. And another one uh, whose father was going through, uh, you know, an addiction crisis. I had a girl, uh, one of the girls, actually a second to last story in the book, uh, not the not the closing sort of coda, but the, the second to last story is a, about a girl whose father has a had, a had a major heart surgery. And when she wrote the story, he was in the, literally in the hospital 
And she didn't know as she was writing whether or not he was going to, to make it, whether he was going to live or not. And in fact, that's the last line of her story. The last line of her story is like, you know, let me know. Let me know if he made it. And so people read the book and they'll, that's one of the first questions they always ask is like, did he make it? Because they get to the end of the book and there's no answer. Uh, so I do follow up, you know, for me and, and Ken knows this, uh, you know, in terms of my teaching, I do tend to, I, I do tend to model vulnerability. Uh, I do, uh, I do like to, to share, you know, I teach, uh, I used to teach psychology in addition to English. And I think modeling vulnerability is something that teachers don't always do. Uh, and I think it's a very effective uh, method when, you know, you're asking for stories from students that you want them to share, you know, the deepest, darkest parts of them, not necessarily, you know, just to do it, but to, to do what they feel comfortable. And, and I think to, in order to feel comfortable, they have to feel safe. And, and for that, I think you really have to model vulnerability. So, yeah, I think it started with with sharing my story and sharing my fear. And, and I think it kind of built from there. So did you find that helpful? Or was it difficult to regulate your own emotions as you kind of read what these students were going through? Or maybe it was 50-50. Are you at, did I find it helpful to read their their stories? Or Yeah, uh, I'd assume it was both uplifting and troublesome for you, too, to handle yeah, your own I, I emotions had, uh, to do that. <laughs> I've had a lot of, uh, I have, I've had a lot of sleepless nights. You know, I've read now at this point, and uh, because of the stories in the Cliffside Park book, but also, really, because of the stories in the Ramapo book, and I give Ramapo a lot of credit because Ramapo really kind of broadened the reach and sort of said, we're going to invite uh, a larger community to share. I've read now hundreds, if not thousands of stories of students uh, and their experiences, and, and they're tough. Like, they're, they're tough. Uh, some of them are, are really tough. Some of them are, are, are very tough. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I do think about it, but I also think that, you know, it is a good. I, I do believe in the, in the positive aspects of, of memoiring. I do believe in journaling as a teacher, as an educator, as as a human being. I think that sharing is a first step towards healing. So if I can be that person for somebody, then I feel like I've done my job. And, and does it affect me? Yeah, absolutely affects me. But it's a small price to pay, I think, for, for what goes on, the transformations that I've seen from these kids and that I've seen in the community. I just, I, I, I feel like I've been very fortunate, and I don't want to aggrandize the project in any way beyond what already has been said. But I do feel very strongly that it is a, it is a net good for, for these kids in a way that has transformed who they are. And I, I just feel very appreciative to have been a small part of that. So uh, I'm interested to ask, you know, so you started off with high school. I mean, it was a dual enrollment course, right? What was the difference between working you now with the Ramapo, you're working with college-age kids or either, even other community members versus high school? Is there, was there a difference? In, yeah, the in Ramapo project was was really targeted towards high schoolers as well. There were a couple college kids who worked on it. Of course, I've done this now. I've done this memoir project as an adjunct, uh, and I've done the memoir project with middle schoolers. So, you know, I've now done this memoir project with every uh, every level between sort of six and college freshmen, sixth grade and college freshmen, the steps are the same. You know, obviously the output is different. The quality of the of the piece is different. The, the Some of the self-reflection can be different. Some of the metacognition can be different. You know, sixth graders, seventh graders might not have that ability to metacognate in the same way, but uh, but the steps are the same. The steps are the same. The, the process is the same. Sort of the, the, the workshopping that we've done is the same. And it, it, a lot of one-on-one -on -one and a lot of Talking to kids and 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 getting them to tell their stories. So, I found that it's been it's been successful at all at all those levels. So, I, I, it's funny because you said uh, you know 
you model, uh, I guess the word was openness, not openness, but vulnerability. I said vulnerability, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's maybe a silver lining that I felt came out of the teaching during the pandemic. And it was that teachers kind of had to learn the importance of um, sort of, sort of the, the person that a student is versus, um, I guess I would say that it, it kind of really changed a lot of mindsets in terms of like focusing on students um, as people, their, their emotional health, their mental health, um, getting out of the, you know, the, the typical teacher mindset of homework and um, getting, you know, getting to class on time. And I'm not saying all these things are, are important, but I think it did open up a lot of teachers to what, what probably was needed anyway, which was sort of a little bit of empathy and a little bit of, of understanding um, that they can now apply in the classroom on a daily basis after. Well, for sure, Ken. And, you know, I, I think one of the, the major things that no one really focuses on is, you know, when you're in school and you're a teacher, you're playing a role. When you're a student and you're in school, you're playing a role. But when you're on virtual learning, as awful as it was for all of us, you're inviting people into your home. The kids would look behind me and see pictures of my family on the wall. I was able to see where they lived. I mean, it's a very different experience when you invite someone into your home. And I think that for how bad uh, virtual learning was in so many ways, that was a tremendous silver. I couldn't agree with you more in terms of having that as a silver lining. Well, this is probably a good place for us to take a break, gentlemen. And uh, you've been listening to WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. This is Leadership Matters. And welcome back to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. Tim Fredericks and Fran Gavin, your hosts here this evening, along with two of our doctoral candidates at Seton, or at, uh, uh, I almost said Seton Hall, uh, at Centenary um, uh Ken Russo and Chris Ireland, and our very special guests. Uh, Ken and Chris, I'm going to toss it back to you. Sean, in our last segment, you talked a little bit about just the sheer volume of stories you got, which is incredible. Um, how did you go through what, what stories kind of made the cut into the book, so to speak? How did you whittle that down and formulate this and, and compile or edit them into the books you have? <laughs> uh, I, I, the glib answer, Chris, is one at a time. You know, uh, one of the promises I made when we reached out to schools and we invited students from all across the state to be a part of this Ramapo project, the class of COVID-19 unmasked, part of my promise when I reached out was I said to teachers, I said, if you have a student who submits a project, I will read their memoir. Um, and I did. I read every single one that came in. Uh, Ramapo was, was very kind. They offered me a, a student. So we had a, a student who is in the education program. She's also a, a, a writer. She wants to be a writer. She's an aspirational writer. And so she also went uh, through me and uh, we went on a kind of triage. So between the two of us, we would we would mark stories that we thought were, you know, quality for print. We thought we would mark for quality for sort of work. Could we work with students? And then there were a few that were um, you know, below our expectations or just not really quite good enough. It was funny because the process was so different than it was at Cliffside Park. When I was at Cliffside Park, these kids weren't necessarily my students. They weren't necessarily in my class, but they were available to me. They were kids that I could um, I could reach out to and, and work with. And most of what we did on the first and second volume was really workshopping. So for the Ramapo project, it was it was very different. It was much more 
uh, gut instinct and sort of working with uh, working with the students to to sort of triage uh, the stories that came in. But I, I read every single one, and we worked on them, you know, one at a time. Uh, is is the is is the glib answer, but it's also the real answer as well. I got you. When they were done writing, did you find that a lot of these students wanted to keep going with this or share with you past this one experience? Because it seems like this would have opened up a lot of opportunities for more writing. Yeah, for sure. I have had students now. Uh, I guess this goes on for two years ago, who have written me and and continued to really uh, showcase their voices. So. I had two students, uh, Alina Coro and Juliana Baldwin, who actually used the book as a springboard for working with Congressman Bill Pascrell, uh in New Jersey. Uh, Congressman Pascrell had actually written the introduction for the book, and uh, these two students interned for him last summer. They had wrote, uh, written to him and said, you know, we want to continue to share our voices. We want to continue to make ourselves heard. We want to continue to you know, showcase how powerful we can be. Can we work? Uh, can we work in your office? And so, that was uh, two students who did that. I had other kids in the book who have gone to uh, Washington D.C. Narig uh, Kasarjian went to Washington D.C. on behalf of uh, an Armenian group last year. And the students, uh, you know, we used to joke, and I know uh, Ken and I would would joke sometimes over text. I I would tell I would tell them that we created a bunch of little Frankenstein's in the sense that like we really elevated their stories and we really told them that uh, their voices mattered, and the kids really took it to heart. So when they wouldn't get their way, they would write emails to the principal. They would write. Uh, messages to to I had one student write to the National Honor Society say how dare you not let me in I was on CNN <laughs> uh, but uh, they really took it to heart that they were important that their voices mattered and and I think a lot of them have never stopped uh, since then uh, one of the students was in the newspaper uh, in the Star Ledger and and she got misquoted but it was such a a, a wonderful quote that it sort of became our motto she said that uh, people will listen if you make them. And I, I just adored that. She said, people will listen if you make them. You make them listen. And I think that the students so far, at least the ones that I've been able to stay in touch with and, and sort of follow up on, they, they've been doing that. They've been doing that. And, and it's, um, it's been a tremendous thing. When, you, when I, I got an email from the, the governor, uh, I guess one of his uh, staff members, asking, them, asking if I would uh, tell the students to stop emailing the governor to come visit. Um, because they emailed him, I guess, every day asking him to come visit. So what, I thought that was fantastic, and I smiled big. So, you know, throughout this process, you've experienced a whole lot of insight, not just into kids, but trauma and then also leadership, I'd say. You know, you, you had principals, vice principals, governors, mayors, uh, you know, deans of colleges, all kinds of, you've seen all kinds of leadership. and. I guess what I would ask you is having all that insight and all that experience, you know, what would you say you learned about not just leading through, you know, tough times, but leading in general kids, what could you pull away from that in terms of like, what did you, what did the best leaders do when you were going through all this? What did you, what helped kids? What, you know, what made the difference? Well, I, so I don't see myself as, as a leader, um, you know, because for a lot of reasons, I was protected from a lot of the logistical, a lot of the bureaucratic stuff that I feel educational leaders, unfortunately, have to deal with uh, a lot of their day. 
And so I was able to sort of go in the corner because I had this pocket of safety where I could do this art project and this memoir project. And so I looked to the people that I sort of worked with, and it's one of the reasons I have such tremendous respect for, uh, you know, the deans and 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 the um, uh, the provost and and the principals that I've been fortunate to to be around. You know, to me, I, I think that if there was any lesson in that, I think that you know, for me, a, a leader is someone who is able to do that for the people that they are are working with. And and so if you can help someone self-actualize, if you can give them the space that they need to be the best versions of themselves, you know, I think to me that is what leadership is, is all about, um, whatever that means and, and whatever that is for, for each person, because obviously it's going to be different uh, for everybody. It's one of the things I've tried to, to really to take into my teaching um, and and really scaffold, you know, a lot of the things I try to do on a, on a much more individual basis where there's a lot of choice. You know, Ken, we've talked about that before where, you know, not only are you choosing your books maybe, but you're also choosing your assessment. Um, and that's something where I've really opened up to a lot in, in particularly ever since, you know, the last couple of years since COVID uh, because, again, I think it's all about trying to help self-actualize. So I, I give tremendous credit to the people that I've, worked with and and none of this would be possible if if they didn't give me that space and give me the ability uh, to do these things. It's interesting you, you talk about self-actualization because because you know I think about our principal Mr. Pinto during that time and he could have easily made it a problem to do something like this but he was he was very supportive of all these these great ideas you had and and I think the first that's the first step of a good leader is you know, supporting the good ideas of the teachers and, and uh, like you said, helping them uh, do these things where it might not be easy. And, and uh, you know, the, your leader, Mr. Pinto, might have had to take some arrows to get it done or whatnot. But in the end, it was for kids and it was for the best. And it's it's amazing how much power you could have as simply being a principal. You could have put a kibosh on something like this fairly easily. easily. And I, I just... Uh, you know, for me, I think that's something I always valued in leaders was, you know, the principals I liked working for the most um, or the superintendents were always, you know, gung-ho about exciting ideas that were that were good for kids. Yeah, Mr. Pinto, you know, I can't say enough good things about him. In fact, you know, we had written um, a book for the middle school, which unfortunately never got published. But, uh, you know, the book was dedicated to Mr. Pinto, to Larry Pinto. And and uh, also to our supervisor, Georgette Van Fleet. And, and both of them, I would say, uh, were, were great leaders in, in that respect. Now, I would say Mr. Pinto was very concerned, and rightfully so, about particular legal issues. So when we're publishing a book, and particularly when you're getting money in from that book, you want to make sure all your T's are crossed. You want to make sure all your dies, our I's are dotted. Uh, so obviously we had a lawyer, a district lawyer, look at a legal release form for the kids. We wanted them to sign, making sure that they knew where the money was going, making them sure, you know, sure that, that there was going to be publicity, that their names are going to be out there, that these things sort of live forever in the ether, but also in a very real sense on the computer. If I could interrupt you one second, I just yeah. want to make sure, you know, the audience knows. So any proceeds from this, you know, whether it was on Amazon or whatever, went to the kids and their parents... Um, signed off on it and I'm just curious you know a I just did parents did you have any problems with parents who didn't who didn't want to approve of, of their stories getting out there of their kids 
Not a one. Uh, you know, I, 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 it's funny because <laughs> I, you know, thinking back now a couple of years when we did the first book, uh, when we put it together, it was a classroom project. We did not sign legal releases. Uh, we did not do that because there was no need to do that. It was not something I ever thought was possible uh, that I ever thought would be necessary. So uh, when I had approached Mr. Pinto about uh, potentially putting it together and putting it in a book, uh, that was the first thing he said. He said, we need these kids to sign legal releases. Well, of course, it, it was, uh, you know, right at the height of COVID. It was uh, June 2020. And the only way that they were ever going to be able to sign releases and have it back by the time the school year ended was if I drove around and went to their houses. Um, and so I did that. That was something I did in early June or, or you know, it might have been late May, I forget, um, in 2020. I drove I knocked on doors um, with my mask on, and I said, "Hi, I'm Mr. Adler. You know, can can you sign this paper?" So, it was amazing because I actually met, actually met a lot of parents for the first time. Uh, subsequent to that, and as a result of the experience where we were in People Magazine, we were on uh, NBC News, we were on CNN. You know, a lot of parents were eager for their kids to be a part of it. So it's it sort of the hard work had been done. In terms of uh, in terms of recruitment, where they were approaching me and saying, you know, can my kid be a part of this? Can can we be a part of this? Because they had seen what what good it was for the kids. Um, as far as the money, you know, I wish I could have given them more. I'm, you know, I've I've lost money. I've said this many times. I'm the only person who's lost money on this project uh, because I've not made a single cent from any of the books. A hundred percent of the proceeds go to the kids, and still do. If you go and you buy the book right now, that money still goes to a scholarship fund for the kids. And the Ramapo book, uh, the same. The Ramapo book goes to a tremendous program at Ramapo called We Care, which uh, I urge everyone to look up. I urge everyone to donate to if they have a few bucks. Uh, that program is a tremendous asset to the students of Ramapo who are in need of uh, a couple extra bucks. So it's a, it's a huge boon to, um, to the, the kids if the books get sold. Uh, and so, you know, I feel, I feel very proud about that fact. But yeah, that was that was obviously a big concern when you're working at a school. And you're absolutely right. Like you are you are correct to point out that it easily could have been said at any point, just don't do it. Uh, not even because it's a bad thing, just because it's not worth the effort. Uh, and I'm glad that Mr. Pinto didn't say that. I'm glad that Ms. Van Fleet didn't say that. I'm glad that they fought for the project. And if they took arrows on behalf of it. You know, I hope that they sit there and 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 appreciate that you know that what what came from it. I hope that they are able to to celebrate that. So you know, there's always a naysayer in the group somewhere. Did you get any negative reaction in your public? You know, as you go out and you publicize this and talk about it, have you had anybody give you a hard time over something they didn't like about it? I can't yeah. imagine. But. <laughs> I, I've had, I've had, you know, it's the internet. So uh, if you go online and you Google my name, uh, you'll you'll see some things that pop up. Uh, people talk in comment sections. People talk on Amazon, on Amazon reviews. So I've had people, uh, people close to me, people that I, you know, I was friendly with or I thought I was friendly with claim that I was taking advantage of students. I was using them to sort of become famous. I've had people, uh, uh, what was one, one person called me the great white hope. Uh, I think they were trying to be, uh, you know, a pejorative, uh, the, the sense that a lot of our students are, are minority students. Uh, Latino, African-American, uh, Asian students, especially Cliffside Park. We had a lot of Middle Eastern students. So I think there's always that uh, that subset of people who will uh, look at anything with a cynical eye. And and you can find that online. I mean, it doesn't take long to, to Google some of those things. Uh, you know, I, I, 
I don't pay much attention uh, to that. I, I kind of grew up on the Internet, and, and I've worked on the Internet for a long time. Before I was a teacher, I worked for MTV News. So, you know, there were always people in the comment sections who were trying to troll you and, and get your goat. Um, so certainly there have been naysayers. Certainly there have been people who have been critical uh, of the project, but really more not of the project, really more of, of me. Like they've looked at it as an opportunity to to criticize me and and – you know, that kind of it's water off a duck's back at some point, but um, but I have seen that for sure. So other than other than your your pockets being a little bit lighter, um, any other negatives come out of this? I mean, I know Chris just asked you, were there any negative reactions? And I know, you know, you're always going to get the Internet troll or the, uh, you know, the jealous person. Were there any negatives, though, in terms of, you know, the student's experience or, or your experience that you didn't foresee? Or, or, or did it, was it all really just... Uh, Purely positive. Well, I, I think in, in addition to some of the uh, uh, some of the sort of internet criticism, um, and Ken, you know, you and I have discussed this before. I think there was some interpersonal conflict at work. You know, I, I think there are people uh, who were not necessarily uh, celebratory when it comes to uh, to fame. And when it comes to sort of renown, I think, you know, in education, but also elsewhere, I've worked other places as well. And and my experience with, with some leaders and some bosses is that there are people who just don't want you to come across your, their desk. It doesn't matter if it's a good thing, a bad thing. Ultimately, they just don't want to be a bothered, <laughs> a bothered thing. And I always, uh, you know, I always look at, at coworkers that way. And 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 so I wonder if um, if there was some of that. And, and frankly, I would be surprised if there wasn't. But um but again, I, I, I find it, uh, you know, small potatoes in the grand scheme. No, no child has ever regretted publishing that I'm aware. No child has ever told me after the fact that they wish they had not written their story. Uh, if anything, I hear the exact opposite over and over and over again. So uh, when I think about the success it's been for the kids, you know, if there is that cynicism and there is that sort of interpersonal demonization, then I, I think it's okay. And by the way, I'm only talking about it because Chris, Ken, you've both asked, but really the 99% of it, 95% of it has been such tremendous uh, positive uh, response that, that I really don't want to focus so much on the negative. You know, I, I agree. It was definitely positive throughout, you know, your the messages I received as I read it, you know, I know Ken was familiar with it. I was not, you know, coming into it. Um, but I did read, you know, the material that you had sent us. I read it from start to finish, um, found it very captivating in sense of um, I thought it would be a lot more the students speaking would be a lot more negative than I uh, really experienced as I read. It really it really was insightful. I'm sure you found this the same and as do all your readers. <laughs> well, the thing I'm most proud of is each of the stories are so uniquely individual as a teacher, you know, somebody once said to me, like, and they're all different, they said this. So all the stories are different. I said, yeah, because they were written by 70 different people. Like, only, um, you know, Juliana could have written Juliana's story. I mean, nobody else could have written it. Only uh, Atta could have written Atta's story. So when they're that personal, only Jorge could have written Jorge's story. You know, to me, that is uh, the beauty of it, is that they're so wonderfully individual. And so, yeah, you're going to have some happiness. You're going to have some joy along with the, um, the sorrow. Well, with this statement of joy and happiness, it's a good opportunity to take a quick break. You're listening to Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. 
And welcome back to Leadership Matters here on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University. We're in the middle of a wonderful conversation with Sean Adler. I'm going to hand it off to Chris Ireland to uh, continue the conversation. So, Sean, we're talking a, a lot about the positives that came out of this. I mean, if you had to do this any all over again, is there anything you would change in the process? If I had to do the the memoir project again, I am doing it again. I'm doing. I'm. I've never stopped doing it, Chris. So, so how, how has that maybe evolved? Well, it's become much more streamlined. You know, when I've worked now with Ramapo, uh, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the material that I've that I've sort of developed over the last year, year and a half, uh, I've posted online, so uh, teachers can can look at sort of lesson plans. They can look at um, sequencing. I did a, a video, a sort of series of videos on YouTube uh, about a year ago, where I filmed the entire sequence. Uh, for asynchronous learning. So, you know, all of that now is out there uh, in a way that is um, helpful to me now because it helps me spend more time sort of one-on-one -on -one workshopping and less time kind of going through the uh, going through the material or going through the foundational work. So, you know, in, in terms of streamlining the process, that was a that was a big boon. Uh, although obviously it was it was a lot of work to set up initially. Uh, but the process, how has the process evolved? Well, for one thing, you know, I think that, uh, you know, it's become much more collaborative. Uh, one of the issues when I wrote the first one, when we edited the first one together, was it was just, it was just me. Um, so it was, you know, obviously a distraction from COVID. It was a, it was a way of not, uh, you know, sort of staring into the abyss. Uh, at that time, but it would never have been uh, able to continue if I wasn't able to collaborate uh, with others. So, you know, I think now it's uh, become a lot more, more of a group, almost, I would say, a group project. Uh, you know, at Ramapo, as I say, I was working with, with Genesis, who was a student, and could not, I could not have done it without, without her input and her help. And the same thing at Ramapo with, um, with people who, worked behind the scenes, people who did tech, people who set up websites. Uh, and so, you know, for me to be able to work with people has been has been a real change from the way it started, but a, a real joy uh, professionally and personally. Are you tired of reading memoirs yet? I mean, are you? Are you, are you <laughs> no, we just did. So I teach now at I teach now at uh, Nork Science Park. I changed uh, I changed districts. I left Cliffside Park last year and uh, I teach now at, at Nork Science Park in University Heights, and uh, my, my students' memoirs are due tomorrow. Uh, I've read a lot of them uh, through workshopping. I have 100 and, 100 and I think 19 students, and I can't wait to read all of them. I can't wait to read every single one. I'm, I think from now on, every year, I'm going to start with memoirs, because uh, for me, it's not only a way to share craft and to, and to do rigor, but to get to know these kids, which is, for me, very important. I really want to know who they are and particularly having changed districts and, and going to a new city, a different place, uh, what their lives are like and, and what their home lives are like. And it's been eye-opening, eye Ken. I mean, you know, some of the some of the stories over the years, not the ones that have even made it into a book, but some of the stories uh, that, you know, have, have transformed me. I, I had a student uh, last year, her name was Grace, and I share her name because she actually is in the Ramapo book. She... Uh, she demanded to be uh, in the in the published uh, Ramapo uh, volume, and her story is about witnessing her mom get murdered uh, in front of her. 
you know, she she witnessed a stabbing uh, of her of her mother and her mother's death, and and she wrote about it. She was, I think, she wrote nine, ten pages. And no, I'll never get tired of it. I hope I hope I never get tired of it. I hope that when I do get tired of it, I I leave teaching because to me this is what it's all about. This is why I became an educator. And, you know, to not only to, to share the stories of these students, but to elevate them in a way that makes them feel heard, it, it, it's what gets me up in the morning. You know, it's what, what keeps me going, not talking symbolism and catcher in their eye. Although I love catcher in their eye, that is not what excites me anymore. Understood. Yeah, I mean, I, the best part of me, I was an English teacher, too. And Sean and I, we, we were both English teachers together. Um, I always thought that from the outside, Teachers of other subjects might say that a unit like memoir might not be the most useful. You know, it's you're not learning to, you know, you're not analyzing literature, you're not, you're not writing essays, you're not prepping for testing. It's but for me, you know, if you believe in the the, the real way to connect with kids is to, is to is to really build a relationship with them, get to know them. Memoir is an essential unit, uh, at least for me as a teacher, it was to really get an insight into my kids, know them as people, know them as writers. So I can imagine uh, you're getting you're getting a lot of insights at Science Park. And do you have plans to roll those to roll those into to another another uh, COVID book? Well there no, I'll never do another COVID book. Uh, you know, COVID is 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 not a topic that I want to explore. I think we've we've plumbed the depths of, of COVID uh, to, to, you know, to the very bottom. So I, I'm not interested in revisiting that. Uh, and I hope that, you know, it never becomes necessary, you know, with the usual caveats that uh, obviously we're, we're past the, the uh, pandemic stage of, of the virus, but, you know, I would do another memoir collection, uh, if, you know, if the school or if Ramapo wanted to, I am pitching that as a matter of fact, we are pitching that to Ramapo, uh, so, you know, it remains to be seen if they are, are interested. I, I think there's um, certainly initial interest. And so it's been discussed. It's it's in the stages of, of being worked out. But the wheels of, of colleges sometimes move slow. So we have to be patient with that. I do think that if Ramapo doesn't want to do it, uh, I think Nork might be very interested in it. Uh, so, you know, I think that somewhere, someday, there will be another book, but not about COVID. I think you'll get this. I'm sorry, Chris. Uh, uh, just wanted to follow up real quick. Sure. You think you'll get the same traction on memoirs that aren't aren't connected to a you know a global pandemic? I think that the you know the the fact the strange thing about COVID was that everybody was going through the same thing at the same time, which kind of connected everybody in a strange way. So, you think you do you think you'll get the same traction, you know, with memoirs that are not necessarily connected to everybody? Well, I think that that question has two answers. I think that, um, no, I, you know, to be honest with you, Ken, I don't think we'll ever get the same traction in terms of publicity, in terms of press, in terms of recognition, in terms of political sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, recognition. No, I don't think so. I think you're right. I think COVID was a, a perfect storm in terms of a shared experience that everyone was going through and everyone was uh, really eager for perspectives and for stories and for historical sort of relevancy. Uh, you know, these are documents that will now live forever. People can uh, study COVID in 100 years, like we study the, the Spanish flu, and they'll have this collection of memoirs, uh, hopefully still on Amazon or whatever the next, you know, version of Amazon is. So, no, I don't know that whatever we do would have the same traction 
uh, nationally. Now, that's not ultimately the goal. Uh, you know, will it have the same traction in terms of will it be able to attract writers? I think more than ever. You know, one of the strange things about switching schools and about switching district is you forget, and maybe you guys have had this experience, you forget the kids Google you now. So you show up for the first day and they say, oh, Mr. Adler, uh, we looked you up online. We saw that you did this and we saw that you did that. And that's a brand new experience for me. And so, you know, for them to be uh, asking me, when are we going to get a chance? When are we going to be able to do this? And and can we learn how to how to craft a, a story and and share our, our memoirs? You know, they've read the COVID book. One of the things that uh, in our memoir project they asked was if we could use the COVID book as a mentor text, as a model text. And so I shared it with them on our classroom. And and so you know the traction. No, I I think you're right. I don't think that there will ever be the perfect storm of publicity. I don't think we're going to be in People magazine again. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, maybe we can uh, maybe we can get even more stories than ever. Has there been any, I mean, and rightfully so, I love that the books are student focused. You mentioned before about the importance of really adults showing vulnerability too. Has there been any thought or interest in, um, you know, for the sake of almost cataloging the emotional experiences from the teacher angle? A teacher collection of stories. Yeah. I mean, oh, you know, I think Chris, you should do it. That would be really interesting. I think that's a great. That's a great idea. <laughs> well, don't 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 pull all the work off on me. No, no I yeah. get all the credit. Listen, you 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 solicit the stories. You put your name on the cover. I I'll tell you what I did think of. There was a uh, so I was looking for I I was and again Ken knows this. I was I was in the market for a new job and I was looking at positions and and one of the jobs that was open was. Uh, was it said Bergen County Correctional Facilities, and I thought that would be interesting. Maybe there's a, a, a book there somewhere, stories from prison. Uh, but I've never, I've never thought of uh, adults telling stories. No, that would be interesting though for teachers to to come together and do it. I, mean, I don't know that I'm the guy to to edit that though. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially to get them to reflect on some of the positives that came out of it. And it, it, sometimes those were hard to find, but some of those relationships they formed with students were uh, were great and they were on their own path of self-discovery throughout. So it would be interesting, but I guess you never know what, what comes out when you ask them to put it to paper. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I think that, the, the, you know, you would get only, po I think the, the, the kids were great because they, they were real. And when I say real, I mean, there were no filters. So if they were, you know, if they were angry at someone, they would write, they would write names and they would name names and they would be angry at people. And my experience as adults don't really have that kind of filterless uh, capability. It'd be great if they did, right? One of the questions is, you know, going to the future, if we had to go through something similar, what do you think leaders could do differently in our schools? I mean, you know, you work through there as, a, as an educator, um, as did we all. What do you think could have gone differently in a better way? Well, you know, so much. I think that one of the the big lessons, you know, I hope that schools have learned, I hope that education has learned is consistency. You know, one of our issues I feel, and, and, and I think this was something Ken and I would speak about, is that we would go, you know, back and forth from virtual, we would go in-person, virtual, in-person, virtual. And I think more than anything, I think it was the the lack of consistency, the inconsistency that that drove so many of us crazy. We were like, okay, we can do one of the two, or we can do this schedule or that schedule, or, or we can be virtual or in person. And, and so I think that, you know, especially in a crisis, you, you want consistency. And I think that, uh, you know, I think that if there, something like this were ever to happen again, 
you know, that would be a big goal. I, we just know so much having gone through it, though. I, I, I feel like anytime you do something the first time, uh, you're never going to, it's never going to be as good. <laughs> it's never, you know, it's never going to be as good as, as the second time or the third time. And I, you know, I feel that way with the book, but, you know, in life, that's such a lesson about so many things. Well, Sean, I think that uh, I'm not speaking just for myself, but it's, you know, it's an amazing thing you did. And it's going to, like you said, it's going to be a record of something that probably is once in a lifetime, you know, a global experience and, and an insight into kids' minds and the school system and what was happening in their lives. And I hope it's a, it's always a reminder to teachers that we're not, we're not really privy to what's going on at home. And so when kids come in, we really have to have in the back of our mind um, that there's a lot of things out of our control and, and uh, to be empathetic, to be flexible, to be understanding. And that's not to say not to have standards, but um, I think I think this is a perfect, you know, the epitome of where we need to go with education. And that's, that's a lot more empathy, a lot more understanding, a lot more flexibility, um, and a lot more interest in kids as who they are, where they come from. And I'm kind of up on my soapbox here, but you know, I, I think that this is this is something to be really proud of. And if people want to, if people want to see the book, it, it's available. Is it the class the class of COVID nineteen dot com? They want to go read. The class of COVID nineteen dot com is the website. Uh, they can also go to ramapo.edu slash the class of COVID nineteen. Uh, of course, they can also go to Amazon and buy the books. They can search by my name, Sean uh, Adler. I'm listed as the editor, so I'm the author on Amazon. And then, uh, uh, you know, either that or just the class of COVID-19. The newest uh, volume just came out. So the newest volume, which is through Ramapo, has a purple cover. And I would recommend that's the one people buy because that is the one that is the freshest. And that is the one that has the most, uh, the most stories from the most varied places. That is the one that we did with all of New Jersey. But yeah, they can they can go to the website, they can go to the um, to the Rampo Edu or, or or just to Amazon, or they could you know send me an email and I'll send them a PDF. <laughs> yeah, I, I already had just sent me PDF. I shared with my staff and they they really yeah. enjoyed it. Um, Chris, any any last questions or, or follow ups before we uh, let Mister Adler go? Has has this just resulted in you getting any requests to work with school districts? You know, in the professional development realm, is that something? that you've gone out and done? So, yeah, it is something that I've done, and it's something that I, I want to continue to do. Uh, and it's something that, uh, you know, is very important to me uh, to share uh, with other districts, you know, not only in terms of technique, but in terms of, uh, I think that, you know, just seeing someone do this uh, is an opportunity for us to recognize that it's possible. So, you know, I'm a smart guy. I like to think that I know what I'm doing, but I didn't have any experience publishing a book. So I had to learn and, and it took me a while to do. So use this uh, and, and, and now you're able to see that, you know, it can be done and I can, I can teach you how. Uh, so, you know, if districts are interested in learning about it, you know, I think that I, I'm very happy to share and very willing to, to collaborate, uh, particularly because I hope that there's another book somewhere. So, you know, if there is, I'm again, going to be reaching out to every school, like, please check your spam folder, please check, your junk, uh, your junk folder, but, you know, reach out, collaborate and, and be a part of this because we want as many voices and as many students from as many schools as we can get. I'm, I'm thirsty and, 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 you know, parched for, or, or hungry for, uh, all the stories I can get. And I, and I do always say I will read every single one. I'm going to throw this idea out there, Sean, and I hope you take it run with it. Cause you know, obviously I think it's a great idea because it's mine. 
What about an illustrated version where you team up with, you know, some local famous artist who could take your original insights from the inside, give it some 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 uh, illustrative depth? That would be awesome. I, I have no talent or skill in that, and I think that uh, I, you know, Mr. Russo, you should you should put your name on the cover of that one. I give you uh, I give you the copyright. We'll have Chris uh, Ireland do the do the art. He's pretty good. Yeah, he but I. I've been really eager to do a volume. You know, I studied psychology in college, and uh, one of the things that you do when you study psychology in college is you read a lot of memoirs. You read Darkness Visible by William Styron, and you read An Unquiet Mind by Kay Jamison, and you read these stories of people who are going through mental illness. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, there's not a single, uh, a single volume anywhere of uh, teenage experiences of mental health crises and what it is for a teenager to experience depression and anxiety and um, bipolar disorder and, and abuse and substance abuse. And so, you know, I think that if there were ever to be another book somewhere, I think that would be the the the, um, the area that I would want to focus on, not only because, you know, these are a lot of the stories that I get uh, as a teacher, as we all get as teachers, but because I think there's a real hole in the marketplace of ideas, not the marketplace. I could care less about making money, but the marketplace of ideas. I think these these ideas, this is, does not exist as a resource for kids to look at and say, I am not alone. Well, I think that's, uh, uh, I think that's a great summation of, uh, uh, of the theme of the night. Um, uh, and unfortunately, our time has come to an end. Uh, uh, very special thanks to Sean Adler for uh, coming to us and for Chris Ireland and Ken Russo for facilitating this. Um, my name is Fran Gavin, and on behalf of Tim Fredericks, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been Leadership Matters on WNTI.org, the voice of Centenary University.